0: This is the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. And now, Rebecca Larson.
1: Welcome to episode 121. I'm your host, Rebecca Larson. I am so excited to share this episode with you because Steph was able to line up one of my personal favorite historians, and I'm quite jealous. Chris Skidmore joins us today. Now, I know Chris from his amazing biography on Edward VI. But today he'll be answering your questions on Richard III, Henry VII, and the Battle of Bosworth, among many other things. A special thank you to my newest patrons, Mark P., Sarah, Daniel H., Samantha D., Catherine M., who signed up in honor of her late friend Karen Fisk, and Cindy. Thank you so much for your support. And thank you so much for the support of all of my existing patrons as well. The show would not go on without you. Do you love this podcast? If you'd like to show your support in a way other than becoming a patron, you can leave a review for the show wherever you listen. But not just any review, a five-star review. And please leave a written review too, because those truly make my day. I love hearing from listeners and what they love about the show. So what are you waiting for? Pause this right now and go leave a review. Another way you can show your support for this show is by ordering merchandise from my Tutor shop over at Teespring. For that, you will find a link in my bio on Twitter and Instagram. You can search at Tutors Dynasty. Now, I recently discovered on social media, and I'm not 100% certain it's true, but I discovered... And many of you may have seen these posts as well that both share yes that's right that share and lord you'll probably know her best from her song royals they're both fans of the tudors so this got me thinking could they be listening to this podcast so share lord if you're listening slide into my DMs because i would love to talk tudors with you <laughs> what are the odds right but i might as well do the shout out anyway All right, it's that time now, and I've decided to go old school here for those of you who have been listening since the beginning. So sit back, relax, turn up the volume, and enjoy this episode of Ask the Expert.
0: And now, Ask the Expert. On today's episode, I'll be chatting with the incredible, talented, and brilliant author and historian, former government minister, Chris Skidmore. So before we begin, I just want to give a heartfelt thank you to all of our patrons and our listeners who wrote in with questions for today. If you'd like to join us as a patron uh, and join us on our journey, please consider visiting patreon.com slash tutors dynasty. Click become a patron and you'll see all the options and what you'll receive if you do sign up. So we couldn't do this uh, without our wonderful patrons. So again, thank you very much. And without further ado, here we are with Chris Skidmore to answer your questions about Richard III, the Battle of Bosworth, and the early years of Henry VII's reign. Thank you for joining us, Chris. Welcome.
2: Thank you, Steph, for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: Anytime. Okay, so let's set the scene first by discussing Richard, Duke of Gloucester and his upbringing or his relationship with his parents and brothers. Can you tell us a little bit about his early years?
2: Yeah. So um, as you rightly mentioned, Richard III uh, started off uh, as Richard, well, he didn't start off as Richard, Duke of Gloucester. Uh, That sort of came later. But he was um, one of the younger born sons of Richard, Duke of York, I think sort of fourth uh, youngest son, and then gradually a few died. Along the way. Um, But almost immediately uh, in his childhood, was thrown into turmoil when his father decided to um, effectively oppose the reigning king, uh, Henry VI, the Lancastrian king, and set his own claim out to the throne. And suddenly, Richard of York uh, becomes persona non grata, has to flee into exile when he fails to take the throne. It sort of begins this uh, uh, civil war conflict, as we commonly know it, as the Wars of the Roses. Uh, and as a result richard's childhood you know is is one that's both itinerant and unstable uh after his father is uh, killed at the battle of wakefield when richard you know isn't very old at all he's sort of 7 8 years old um he's then forced to go into exile uh across into the netherlands into burgundy uh and then he's brought back suddenly when his own elder brother edward uh, earl of march becomes edward iv and so he's sort of this topsy-turvy, uh, polarizing world where suddenly he's, he's nobody. Uh, and then suddenly he's raised up to become a prince, actually you know, one of the, the brothers of, of the new king. Uh, but then he's given this title, uh, Duke of Gloucester. Uh, and then even then, he's still not only in the, his brother's shadow, uh, Edward the Fourth shadow, he's in the shadow of his elder brother, George, Duke of Clarence as well. Uh, and as a result, yeah, no one really thinks of Richard as, as posing a threat. On on the contrary, Clarence then sort of becomes the threat as heir to the throne, uh, and he then becomes a bit disgruntled once Edward IV marries Elizabeth Woodville, begins to have children, Clarence is sort of pushed aside. Clarence decides to ultimately rebel against Edward IV, uh, causing the sort of second spate of wars and the Wars of the Roses at the end of the 1460s, early 1470s, and, and remarkably, Uh, Someone called um, Richard, Earl of Warwick, uh, then backs uh, Henry VI to come back on the throne and Clarence decides to back Henry VI against his own brother. Whereas um, Richard, as this younger brother, remains loyal uh, to the Yorkist dynasty. And it's that loyalty that you can see in Richard's early life as being so important as a value to him and then he comes from being a younger son Clarence you know, eventually doesn't get the rewards he he wants and, and and rebels and eventually is executed uh Richard slowly manages to piece together various lands particularly in the north after the Earl of Warwick is is, is uh, dies at the battle of uh, Barnet and Richard gains quite a lot of his lands as a result so actually his childhood is one of that starts from you know nothing really no chance at all of becoming king and then suddenly He scraps his way up to the top of the heap uh, and becomes the most preeminent nobleman in the realm within 15 years as a result of sticking close to his brother and watching everyone else fall by the wayside around him.
0: Well, speaking of his childhood, very quickly before we move on to his later years, Doug Breeden wrote in, and was asking us if you think that there is any truth. This is an Edward the Fourth question, but it does have to do with Richard's childhood. So, do you think that there's any truth to the rumor that Edward the Fourth was the son of a French archer and not necessarily the son of Richard Duke of
2: York? So these stories um, yeah, emerge. In the 1470s, to start with, um, you basically have uh, the French court of, of Louis XI, uh, Philippe de Communes, um, mentions how Louis used to tell this story that Edward IV was illegitimate and the son of an archer uh, who was called Blayborn. And then a bit later on in uh, Dominic Mancini's um, uh, occupation of Richard III, which he, we know he writes in December or finishes it in December 1483 he talks about how Richard's mother, uh, Cecily Neville, uh, is go- get so enraged with Richard uh, that she's going to reveal that actually um, the, Edward IV was, was illegitimate. Uh, and or that's a, one of the rumours that sort of uh, is, is mentioned in, in Mancini uh, around the sort of time when he's then writing up for, uh, the history of Edward IV's court. Um so you yeah, these accusations were there uh quite early on uh the question around the actual facts is important here because when you well basically uh, Richard Duke of York was sent over as lieutenant general in france uh in fourteen forty one uh and he took his wife with him uh and they were actually separated they they weren't together we know they weren't together. Between the period of the 19th of July 1441 and the 20th of August 1441. Uh, But then fast forward to April 1442, 28th of April 1442, that's when Edward IV is born. So you can do the maths and count backwards and say, well, actually, there's this period where actually his, um, um, you know, the, 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 the due date dates back to a period where actually potentially it suggests that. Uh, his father wasn't around when he was conceived um but then again, you know that that doesn't take into account uh things to do with um you know uh, actually are the dates correct you know his his actual date of birth date, and uh, can we be absolutely sure that sort of Richard didn't sort of pop back Richard Duke of York at any one time, which don't know um I think i can't, I was trying to find I think there is an article now that has come out using records in Rouen Cathedral has managed to sort of disprove this theory. Um, but I haven't read the article. I've just seen it sort of, you know, I think it might be in the Ricardian or something sort of recently. Um, but I would say, however, this is the, comes down to the crux of, of many of these discussions in the 15th century. You've got the truth and the ba- the, the plain truth, uh, and that's important. But then also you have this sort of disinformation, uh, which we now well now know from social media. It doesn't matter sometimes if it's true or false. If people believe it and start spreading it, then that's a problem, Uh, and you know it's a problem because it destabilizes the authority of a dynasty. And so it's a bit like the princes in the tower. It doesn't actually matter if Richard killed the princes in the tower or he didn't kill the princes in the tower, because actually people believed that the princes were dead, and that's why Henry the Tudor was able to begin to try to seize the throne in 1483. So you know it's an important sort of cornerstone of the sort of Yorkist dynasty, this this rumour. Um, and even if it's been proved false, you know, it, it was used as a weapon, you know, against Edward the Fourth and ultimately against his children. Uh and yeah, you know, that I think is, is incredibly interesting that it was current, that it was swirling as a rumour. Now who who came up with the it originally, I'm not sure, but it it's important that we study it, uh, because you know, truths. Uh, it is sometimes something which is, is, is not believed. Uh, and why isn't it believed? And who is peddling and pro- propagating uh, this kind of propaganda is important questions that historians should ask.
0: So Edward IV obviously married Elizabeth Woodville, but his uncle, known as the Kingmaker, had other plans. I think he had mentioned marrying possibly someone else. And had he married who he suggested, do you think... Uh, Samantha Dillon, thank you, Samantha, wrote in with this question. Do you think that Richard III would have felt differently about his nephews and perhaps not taken the throne when he did? So I think if if I can paraphrase the question that Samantha's asking a little bit, I think what she's asking is if he had, did Richard III have something against the boys because of who their mother was? Does that sound right? Hopefully, Samantha got that right.
2: Yeah, and Samantha's absolutely right uh, to pose that question, which is a good one, because actually in my book on, on Richard III, when you look at 1483 and why Richard decides to take the throne, he can't do it by himself. He's got to have the support of the nobility to do so. And the reason why he has the support and the nobility to take the throne from Edward V is because there's a general fear Uh, that Edward V himself is a Woodville. He has grown up uh, with his uh, governor being Anthony Woodville, um, Lord Rivers, um, who's the Queen's brother. And so, you know, there is a general fear that actually what's happened in the past where the Woodvilles have looked after their own and they've sort of taken lands from other members of the old nobility, that's going to continue. And so for Richard, it's a sort of, what he feels, sort of kill or be killed. You know, actually, he, he... Recognizes that the Woodfalls would be predominant and d- decide to run the court however they wish. And so that's the, that's the weakness, the structural weakness that has been brought in by this marriage. Now, if you did the sort of counterfactual history, you could then say, well, actually, if Edward had married the candidate, the French candidate, uh, or Bon of Savoy was another candidate, kind of Warwick went through a couple of matches that sort of he had in mind then Warwick would have never turned his back against Edward Fourth. It was basically Warwick wanted to choose a bride that was going to match his foreign policy and help him with his foreign policy. Um, and it was that sort of choice of, 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 of wife, uh, Elizabeth Woodfield, that you know for whatever reason, it might not be that Warwick opposed Elizabeth Woodfield per se, but he, he felt that you know, the king had decided to take an independent decision away from him as the, ultimately the kingmaker. But you might have then seen, you know, if if Edward IV had married Warwick's choice of bride, that Warwick would have stayed loyal to Edward IV, Clarence, George Duke of Clarence would have stayed loyal to Edward IV. You know, Richard III would still be a minor sort of nobleman. He certainly wouldn't have been able to become Lord of the North because he wouldn't have inherited Edward uh, Warwick's lands, which was critical for Richard III to, to actually shape his personality. So Richard would have been a minor nobleman in the South. He certainly wouldn't have uh, uh, been able to marry Anne Neville or any of these sort of... So, actually, the marriage was actually the undoing of of the Yorkist dynasty, but actually sort of helped propel Richard uh, forward. And what I find really interesting is when you look at Warwick's accusations against Edward IV and the Woodvilles, which he sort of decides to publish and go over the breach in 1469. They're not too similar, too dissimilar from the titulus Regius that uh, Richard III then publishes in the Parliament of 1484, you know, actually sort of talking about uh, Edward IV's misdemeanors and sort of you know, accusing the Woodvilles of, of, of various sort of things. So um, and you know, he accuses in one of the letters in forty three the Woodvilles of, of, of effectively witchcraft which is very similar to sort of the accusations that were being made in the late 1460s also against the Woodvilles so things seem to come around uh, but I think that marriage was ultimately this sort of smoking or sleeping whatever smoking gun I don't know what you'd say but it, it was it created this fault line that was there this sort of San Andreas fault line equivalent in, in sort of medieval history then sort of broke open in in, in fourteen eighty three, uh, yeah, you, you you've got to see that marriage as being something that even people sort of put up with it for for so long. Uh, but then it by the time that uh, Edward the had gone, he was the, the sort of overmighty king. Once he's gone, the the nobility weren't going to put up with being pushed around by the Woodvilles anymore.
0: Techno wrote in with yeah. regards to his marriage. He wanted to know if uh, Richard the Third's wife. Anne Neville was a big influence on his political decisions. Did, he, did she have a lot of say? Did he really involve her in his decision making processes?
2: So, Richard's marriage to Anne Neville is the sort of thing that sort of propels him into the Premier League of the, of the nobility. You yeah, know, it's actually her lands as well from the Earl of Warwick that he manages to get hold of as a result of sort of the partition of. of uh, her father, Richard, um, Earl of Warwick's lands. And so actually, so Richard owes everything to Anne in a way that he has these these lands uh, that, that then allow him to build up a, a sort of patrimony and a, and a landed army uh, you know, as a result. And actually, when you see sort of their relationship in the 1470s develop, they, they both go along to the same sort of Corpus Christi, Religious events, you know, she's a sort of powerful patron in her own right. Uh, and uh, they seem to have a sort of shared, sort of, you know, common identity in, in the books they read as well. Um, so I think she, you know, she's a, a powerful figure. Now, you know, we don't have any evidence that survives of her own writings or, or, or you, know, m- you know, much of, about sort of her, because she stayed, spent most of her life up uh, in the north once uh, she got married to, to, to Richard. But I always think it's really interesting that when you look at 1483 and the moment that Richard decides to take the throne and I don't I'm one of these people who I think he didn't intend to become king straight away and I, I think you know it was a number of decisions he had to take that forced his hand so eventually he thought there was no alternative but Anne Neville comes down from York to London on the 5th of June 1483 she's been up in the north up until that point and then suddenly on the 9th of June into the 10th of June that's when Richard, Richard writes his famous letter to to York to the to the mayor of York asking for military support in order to help um, arrest the Woodvilles who he claims are threatening his own life now he still does it in the name of Edward V but i think anne must have been a sort of you know guiding influence on on Richard's decision. she comes down from York and then you know she, he has conversations with her about his future And and, I just think it it can't be a coincidence that she arrives down into London and then three or four days later, Richard's taking the decision to, to effectively overthrow the woodfalls and potentially seize the throne as well.
0: I was just wondering if you could talk us through a little bit about the events leading up to the Battle of Bosworth, because the next couple of questions are kind of about the battle. So just for the listeners who are not completely familiar with how they got there, would you give us a little bit about them?
2: Yeah, sure. I mean, I quickly, I'm going to rewind back two years, if that's okay, because obviously Henry VII, well, it was actually Henry Tudor, you know, is somebody who doesn't really have a very strong claim to the throne. Yeah, you know, his mother is Margaret Beaufort. Uh, she herself, you know, is descended down the sort of Beaufort line. Um, and that's obviously an illegitimate line that is then legitimized uh, from John of Gaunt. And that's where, you know, Henry has this sort of, tenuous claim to the throne. So why are people thinking they're going to support him at the Battle of Bo- you know, when it comes to the Battle of Bosworth? Why is he there even? And you go back two years to, I think, the summer of 1483. You know, Richard's just taken the throne. He's declared Edward V and his brother Richard illegitimate. And then everyone seems to agree that that's okay and that he can take the throne. But then what's not okay is that they suddenly disappear and no one knows what happens to them, and people start to think, well, actually, maybe they've been killed. Now, I think that you know, whether they were actually killed or not is an irrelevant question for this particular point, because people believed that they were dead. Um, you know, the fact that Henry can't actually prove it later on is, is an important point when it comes to the pretenders in the 1490s, when which why he gets into difficulties. But people support Henry Tudor because he then promises to marry uh, Edward IV's eldest uh, daughter, Elizabeth of York, um, and as a result, all these sort of people who were then backers of, the, of Edward IV decide to defect over to Henry Tudor, who's in the, he's been in exile for 14 years in Brittany, and then he's gone to France. Uh, and why do they do that? It's because they think that Richard's become a tyrant, and that he has killed these two young children. And if you do that, you know, you're you effectively sort of Herod-like, and you won't stop at anything. And so, I think people felt that the, 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 whether or not it was a rumour, you know, but people sort of felt that the printers must be dead. And, and so um, as a result, they rebel in, in 1483. And Henry Tudor tries to come over. You know, he lands on the shore of, 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 the, of southern England in, in Poole. But Richard's managed to sort of get there before him. He's got his troops on the beaches. And Henry had to, has to turn back again. And the rebellion is, is led by also the Duke of Buckingham goes was disastrously wrong. People had to wonder why the Buckingham was involved. You know, was, did he have a, a say in the prince's death and wanted to join the rebellion in order to mask his responsibilities for that? Who knows? Um, but what we do know is that Henry Tudor then receives all these exiles in France who failed in the rebellion but then decide to come over. And things start to go badly wrong for Richard. Um, Henry builds up his support base and eventually they get money from France and uh, mercenaries from France to come over and invade in August uh, 1485. Um, They land in in Mill Bay, uh, just off the Milford Haven on the the westernmost tip of Wales. And they make their march through Wales. And Richard thinks that they're going to be stopped, but they're not. Uh, And there's obviously interesting reasons why they're not stopped. And I cover all that in my book on the Battle of Bosworth. Then effectively, uh, Richard realises that if he doesn't stop Henry, he's going to be able to march down Watling Street, uh, which is the current A5, and into London. So he's in Nottingham, and then he mobilises one of the largest armies ever seen on one side uh, in England, according to the Crowling Chronicler, and decides that he is going to face Henry Tudor himself in battle. And so he calls his nobility with him, but at the same time, there's certain members of the nobility who aren't, who are dragging their feet, notably Thomas Lord Stanley and William Stanley, his brother, uh, Henry Percy, the Earl of Northumberland. Um, yeah, so, so Richard is a bit suspicious of what's going to happen, and he draws his battle line up in what we know the, the battlefields move slightly, Battle of Bosworth. It's not actually at Bosworth, but it's, uh, it was called a place called Readmore, uh, and he probably decides to line his, his army up at Ambion Hill, and he's got about 15,000 men on one side, Henry Tudor's just got about 5,000 men, if, if that. And he's got some good French uh, gunners, though, uh, a professional army, and he's got someone called John de Vere, the Earl of Oxford, uh, who is leading his vanguard. And the last time the Earl of Oxford had ever been in combat was actually against Richard III at the Battle of Barnet. And then Oxford had to, to flee and was then sort of arrested and, and imprisoned in France, and Henry managed to, get, to allow him to escape in 1484. So what I find fascinating about Bosworth. There's lots of um, you know, sort of people with their own individual uh, grievances that they're willing to settle at the battle, um, and so that's the, what the battlefield looks like on on the eve of uh, you know, 21st of August 1485 uh, before they begin battle early that morning, maybe at six o'clock in the morning uh, when they decide to engage, uh, and you know I can. Cover the the battle if you'd like me to, or whether you wanted to ask another question. But that's 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 the the, the run up to the battle uh, in, in a nutshell.
0: So now the big question, which I don't even know that you can answer. We had a a few people write in with this, but we'll give a shout out to Katie Ray for asking. Why do you think that Stanley went against
2: Richard on the battlefield and ended
0: up siding with Henry Tudor? Hmm.
2: You had a situation where Henry Tudor has actually met with the Stanleys at some place called Merivale Abbey, uh, which is quite close to the battlefield side. Maybe a couple of night before, two days before the, the battlefield, the battle actually takes place. And he's obviously trying to wring out a commitment from the Stanleys to, to, to engage or to come onto his side, which they, they clearly refuse to do so um and if anyone gets to visit the battlefield site, i mean unfortunately it's now got sort of hedges and all the, the the land's been cut up into you know, enclosures and fields and there's a canal running through it but you can sort of it see this battlefield site when you know these people don't fight on a on a on a football pitch yeah they they fight over masses of you know miles and miles of of, of sort of land and it's sort of in a basin and you've got in the bottom there's a marshy area which is known which was known as Reedmore. Which is important for when the battles fought, but the the Stanleys seem to sit out up on a hill on one side, um, around potentially um, uh, Dadlington and this little village there, and and Stanley has his his, his sort of battle for, and field set out, and and William Stanley has his battle set out, and they just don't engage. They they probably decide to to sit out because Richard has as a hostage um thomas stanley's own son george lord strange um and he's had him as a hostage since about the first of august so stanley has been able to claim that he's been mobilizing his army but he's been stopping henry tudor from marching down the a5 so legitimately he can say well i've not come to your aid but i've also stopped henry tudor from actually coming down the main arterial sort of road network into london But then, when the battle commences, you know, does Stanley, Thomas Stanley, sort of decide to hold out because he's waiting to see who's going to win? Or is it because actually, you know, his son is there, potentially going to be executed? Now, there seems to come a point where George Lord Strange is freed by Richard or manages to escape. And I think the Stanley's then realises that Strange is now away from the king's clutches. And maybe that gives them the freedom to make those decisions that actually. Strange is not going to be killed um, as a result, or you know, by by Richard. But then also you've had a situation where the battle starts and actually Oxford gets his revenge and, and the, he manages to sort of destroy uh, Richard's own vanguard led by the elderly John Howard, Duke of Norfolk. And that vanguard collapsing, normally then what happens is Richard's in the got the middle ground, and then at the back you've got the rear guard, and the rear guard is meant to come and help once if the if the, if the uh, vanguard's in trouble. The rearguards are being led by, on Richard's side, by Henry Percy, the Earl of Northumberland. Now, he doesn't move, and that seems to be the turning point in the battle is that Northumberland doesn't engage. Now, why doesn't Northumberland engage? And this is a question the historians will continue to debate for a long time, because on the one hand, you know, Northumberland actually was a childhood friend of Henry Tudor when they were at Raglan Castle together. So perhaps, you know, you know, maybe they knew each other in, in, in some form, uh, and, and maybe actually, you know, that they were friends. Well, actually, that's not quite true. Sorry, let's sort of go back. Basically, they had a sort of contact who, uh, effectively, Henry Tudor was a childhood friend with uh, the Herberts. And so whether Northumberland had been sort of spoken to in advance, Apollywood or Virgil in his manuscript history definitely sort of suggests that they're trying to reach out to Northumberland. But Northumberland doesn't get the rewards I think he he felt he deserved uh, after helping to support Richard take the throne Uh, and as a result does he begin to think about turning against Richard and who knows what's going on in his heads but there could be a situation where there's this marsh that's in the way and Northumberland can't engage because the battle's turned around 90 degrees and it stops Northumberland the marsh is a barrier for actually stopping him actually engaging so there's there's different versions of of, of why Northumberland may not actually engage unfortunately three years later four years later Northumberland actually killed by some of his own men in the north. Uh, and one of the reasons is suggested is actually because that he betrayed Richard at the Battle of Bosworth. Uh, so certainly some people believe that he sat on his hands and didn't help Richard when he should have done. But I think for Stanley, he probably saw Northumberland not moving and thought, okay, Richard's now in trouble because his, bang- his, his rear guard's not sort of being involved. And then the king, Richard III, decides to do what you should never do, which is decides to charge an individual into battle. And he spots Henry Tudor's standards. And Henry, you know, is somebody who's never fought a battle. He's never engaged militarily. He's never even had the chance to probably even practice arms. He's been in exile, locked up. So even though he's 28, he's had no military experience. He's been shielded by his sort of supporters. Um, and, you know, Richard III's never lost a battle. You've got to remember that. So he thinks, well, this is another battle. I've successfully, you know, led the vanguard at the Battle of Barnet and Tewkesbury in 1471. I've been a fantastic military general in Scotland. Uh, won battles in, in 1482, and uh, so he's never lost. Um, and so he decides to take up arms and puts the crown on his head. And he sees, it, I think, very much as like a second coronation. If God's on his side, he's going to win. So he charges with the, sort of his, his cavalrymen at Henry Tudor. And then he's getting, he gets obviously very close to killing Henry. I think yeah, if you look at some of the people who, who uh, then are injured, mortally so, you've got obviously uh, William Brandon, uh, who is uh, Henry's standard bearer, is cut down. Uh, there's Percival Thrivel, who has his sort of legs cut from beneath him, and it seems there's this really bloody sort of battle around the standard, which Richard is so close to winning, um, but then Sir so William. Stanley decides to charge in uh, with his Welsh troops, and it's William Stanley who sort of then, you know, with the thousands of men, sweep Richard's 200 men into this marsh where Richard is then killed. And we can look at the wounds on his body, which suggests potentially that he's, you know, pinned down and then had his helmet cut off and then has a uh, you know, a sword st- struck straight through his his head. So we know that because we can see the sword tip on the inside of his skull where it's gone straight through his brains. Uh, so it's obviously a point where Richard's sort of taken down and uh, almost have a sort of execution on the battlefield. Uh, and the original versions of you know, the more recent, you know, things like the Great Chronicle talk actually about Sir William Stanley um, actually being the person who hands this throne, Richard's crown, to Henry on the battlefield. And that's changed later on uh, to Thomas Stanley. But Thomas Stanley didn't seem to, you know, sits it out completely, doesn't get involved. Um, and he's always done that. He did it at the Battle of Heath in 1459. He sat it out, didn't get involved. Whereas William Stanley has, has more to lose potentially. And so he decides, you know, I think to, to throw his lot in with Henry Tudor. Um, uh, but 10 years later, William Stanley rebels against, uh, Henry Tudor and decides to back Perkin Warbeck. And, uh, uh, it's, I think it's interesting to see because again, William Stanley probably expected great rewards for being the kingmaker. But for Henry Tudor, it placed him in quite an awkward position, having this w- person who is totally dependent upon for for, for his um, his life. And I think that was something that, uh, even though he made William Stanley Chamberlain of his household, um, you yeah, know, for a king to feel actually there was somebody who, if it wasn't for William Sir William Stanley, he wouldn't he would probably have died, and Richard III would still be on the throne probably some a difficult burden to, to hold really. Uh and so their relationship never really quite gets off the ground as a result. But I think Sir William Stanley uh probably then knew that George L Strange was safe. He could see that Henry Tudor was probably about to sort of face uh an end under Richard and decides to charge in, you know, as as a result. Um but he he does so knowing that um he uh, his wife has died recently and sort of he's got sort of situation where his own like um landed patrimony is at risk as well and he doesn't sort of you know, try to get sort of support and he's already sort of been declared a traitor by richard iii that's important to recognize the crowland chronicle talks about sir william stanley being declared a traitor several days before the battle whereas he, do- he doesn't do that for thomas stanley so i think sir william stanley's got nothing to lose uh he just waits his time and then picks it before he charges in. And probably he was always going to get involved. Whereas it's unlikely Thomas Stanley was ever going to charge in to the battle.
0: I love that during that, you threw in the little nugget about him supporting, uh, Park and Warbeck. so I definitely want to come back to that when we get into the early Henry the seventh, uh, years, but really quick, just to wrap up some of the Richard, the third questions now, um, Beth Hunt wrote into us and, Wanted to talk a little bit about his reputation. I know that obviously, especially in different books and literature and things, he's kind of portrayed as this monster. And do you think that his his reputation is William Shakespeare's fault? Or did he get this reputation before the plays that he wrote?
2: So Shakespeare bases his play on... Uh, Ralph Hollinshed's chronicles and Hollinshed bases his chronicles on Edward Hall's chronicle and Edward Hall bases his chronicle on Polydor Virgil's Anglia Historia. Uh, So basically you've got this sort of body of work that only begins to be written, will actually be published in 1534 so way after, uh, you know, Richard's ever been on the throne um, that is then actually commissioned, you know, Polydor Virgil is commissioned by Henry VII to write this history. So actually in a way, you yeah, know, Shakespeare does use his Tudor Chronicles, but they are set against Richard from the start. Uh and they're highly partial and they, they set obviously certain people in, in very good lights, not least you know, Margaret Beaufort, who's seen as a sort of you know, there's a, there's a woman on a mission who's always got sort of a uh, gonna try to put a th- son on the throne. And yeah, we know that from the reality of the contemporary records, that's not true, that she was willing to cut a deal with Edward the Fourth and even maybe Richard the Third to, to, to um get her son back from exile. Uh, and you know, when we look at the contemporary records, particularly of 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 the city of York and elsewhere, you know, there's a lot of love for Richard the Third. Um, and there's even a lot of love for Richard the Third individuals like John Rouse, um, who sort of praise him in summer of 1483, but then turn his back on Richard two years later when he calls him like the son of the Antichrist. So actually people knew which way their bread was buttered, to use an English phrase, uh, and decided to you know, change their opinion of Richard, but sort of you know, in hindsight once he was dead. Um, so he is hard done by in history, and it's important that we recognise that actually even if Richard was responsible for the death of the prince in the tower, which could be seen as a legitimate sort of exercise in order to make sure that he stabilised the regime, just as Edward IV had uh, ordered the execution of uh, Henry VI uh, in 1471, in order to basically just put an end to everything, the bloodshed and the sort of internecine civil war that, you know, the image of Richard III that is handed down to Shakespeare was one that obviously begun to sort of emerge in the early 16th century but was paid, effectively paid for by the Tudor dynasty.
0: Agreed. And now our last question about Richard III comes from Nancy Buchanan and she wanted to know about how Richard III's body was found in the car park. So we know that It was found in the car park near Bosworth, I guess. So can you explain kind of the geography around that? So where is that in relation to where the battle was? And it also kind of poses the next question. What did they actually do with his body after he was killed?
2: Yeah. So effectively you the Ballot Bosworth takes place now roughly in a sort of square location between Stoke Golding Dadlington, uh Sutton uh, Courtney uh, It's sort of a, a sort of little square and an ambient hill and and um that's not at Bosworth Bosworth market bosworth is about 4 miles away from 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 there three, four miles away um so, Bosworth is the nearest sort of market town, and it only becomes known as the Battle of Bosworth about 20 years later. As I said, it was known as the Field of Readmore uh, to start with. Um, and then the chronicles talk about, Cronin Chronicler talks about how Richard's body is then put on the back of a horse, naked, all besmired in filth, and how his privy parts are dangling. Uh, and there was sort of his body was treated with great iniquities I can't remember the exact phrase but sort of you're quite curious so you sort of and and talked about how he was then led into Leicester which is the nearest city uh, and where his body was then uh, put on display uh, at the Greyfriars uh, minor uh, and but which is sort of it doesn't exist anymore and that's what what, quite interesting how they managed to find the the body by sort of looking at architectural drawings from the past of where the Greyfriars was and trying to imprint across that where potentially Richard might have been buried as a result. But his body was put on display uh, for a couple of days, just like Richard uh, Earl of Warwick's was after the Battle of Barnet, to prove to people that he was actually dead. So, you know, dealing with those rumours, because often in medieval times, you know, rumours emerge of people then coming back to life, you know, sort of uh, not, never being killed in the first place. So that's why I think his body is then taken on the, from the battle put on the this, this horse very publicly to demonstrate the king is dead long live the king uh, mm-hmm. and uh, then he is buried uh what was, what was quite interesting is that you know, it proved the, the chronicle chronicler has proved right when it talks about how his body was many sort of un, in, iniquities on performed on his body because we know that someone stuck a dagger Straight between Richard's buttocks, uh, because you can see the sort of cut mark on the inside of his pelvis, you know, in the skeleton, where someone would have taken this dagger and thrust it right in in between his buttocks, um, and uh, you know, potentially that shows that someone particularly didn't like Richard III, or he had a sort of you know, uh, emerging bad reputation as a result. But obviously, someone decided to take that decision to thrust a dagger between his buttocks, um, and. then he was buried with 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 no sort of coffin. And We know that sort of he we, when the skeleton was discovered, he was buried sort of like slightly awkward angle. We see his arms had been bound, uh, and he was probably just in a simple shroud. And um, we, you know we we can see from the skeleton the scoliosis that, that you know of Richard III's spine uh, that was sort of rumoured, but now we know is true. Um, and he was buried in the nave of the Greyfriars um, and church. And gradually over time, that became the you know, dissolution of monasteries. It became someone called Robert Herrick's house. And he used to show people in the 17th century, oh, look, there's Richard's grave in my garden. Um, because 10 years after Richard was buried, Henry VII paid for a tomb for Richard III in 1495 pretty much at the same time around Perkin Warbeck i think probably to prove again to you know a forgetful population that Richard was dead and this he was really henry vii was the king and he wasn't to be messed with um, and you know Herrick's garden eventually yeah you know, falls by the wayside and, you know, they, they pieced a guy called David Baldwin, who wrote a very influential article in the late 80s and sort of pieced together to say, well, if Richard is buried, he's probably buried in this location because I've managed to you know, show where Herrick's garden was. And this is where, you know, and actually it was a car park of, of the local authority, the back of the grammar school, the school had been built on, on Herrick's house. And eventually the council, the local authority, had then sort of taken over the the school and the, and, the, and the car park. Um, and fortunately, you know, Richard's feet had gone missing because they sort of put a, a toilet in for the school just at the, at the point where his feet were. So um, luckily, the, the, the body managed to survive. Um, and you know, a lady called Philippa Langley had decided to do this Finding Richard project. And they were convinced that it wasn't a car park using David Baldwin's evidence. Uh, and they were right. And they dug it up. And remarkably, they found him. And there it was all this time.
0: So as we move forward a bit and go into the early years of Henry VII, I wanted to bring up listener Krystalyn's question, which discusses his reputation of being somewhat of a miser, I guess. Um, Do you think, based on your research of Henry VII, that he cared more about money than his subjects?
2: So again, I think you've got to look at Henry VII across the... um twenty or so year period. And he's not one single individual person, well, none of us are, are we? We change our, our personalities over time depending on the experiences in life that we've endured. And I think for Henry the Seventh, you know, he starts off as a sort of twenty-eight-year-old, vivacious sort of character, but gradually is sort of ground down by the suspicion and paranoia of being king, uh, you know, trying to protect his realm. You've got to remember he came from nowhere to become king he was the pretender and if he could do it why not somebody else and so i think he sort of you know that's what i'm really interested in is trying to get that sort of sense of uh he's almost the shadow of his early years comes back to haunt him because he then realizes that maybe somebody else could do exactly the same if they get the right level of support that he did from the french government you know he, he should never have become king you know he should never have won the battle of bosworth really uh, it was against all odds that he did so yeah, particularly with that sort of uh, army of five thousand versus Richard's fifteen thousand men. Um, but he then faces a number of challenges from pretenders. You know, basically, once surviving Yorkists from the Yorkist dynasty who are not reconciled to the Tudor dynasty. You know, he comes along Henry VII, and he doesn't have then any sort of support, residual support within his ability. He's got to build that up over over the years, and. This is rocked by the fact that there's a suggestion that the prince, the sons of Edward IV are still alive, which then takes away any legitimacy for Henry Tudor, who's based his legitimacy on marrying Elizabeth of York and reuniting the houses of Lancaster, which he sort of represents through his sort of Beaufort line, uh, and the House of York. But if Edward V happens to be alive, or Richard Duke of York, Edward V's younger brother, then they come first for you know people in the, who believe in the Yorkist dynasty. So these pretenders come along, and you know the big one is Perkin Warbeck who manages to unlock the the the, the recipe, or that basically suggests if you say you are the a prince, the a son of Edward the Fourth, then you suddenly find hundreds of men believe you if you manage to make be convincing enough, and that's a real challenge for Henry. But as a result, Henry starts to really crack down on all of these things called bonds and recognances, which are basically to put people under sort of effectively, uh, you know, surety, uh, sort of where uh, basically, um, you know, he said will you stump up the cash and if your mates will stump up the cash, if you basically uh, rebel. And so he begins to realize it's quite an effective policy. And once he realizes it becomes addictive because he realizes he can start raising money. And then he realizes actually he can buy off uh, people like Maximilian, uh, Archduke Maximilian, who was, has been supporting these pretenders, and he gives him a load of cash. So he decides to give Maximilian like a hundred k, hundred thousand pounds, to stop him from like being playing you know, silly games, uh, supporting pretenders. But he needs to raise the money in, so it becomes this vicious cycle of actually he needs the money in because he, he suddenly realizes that money is king. If he can, if he can be financially solvent, he's not dependent on Parliament. He can then buy off people's support against these pretenders. So, in a way, the money comes later. It's the money and all the bonds and the miserliness that takes place is all a result of him actually realising it's the best way of him to secure the dynasty. Uh, but I think that sort of comes a bit later on. Um, and you know his reign sours as a result. But it comes from him sort of then re- once his son Arthur dies and he's only got one son, Henry, Duke of York, who obviously becomes Henry VIII. He's not willing to risk anything. and. Unfortunately, obviously, costs him. Eventually, everything costs. You've got to balance up, you know, risks, don't you, and uh, trade offs. And the trade off is that he loses support and popularity.
0: So, for our final question, I just want to come back. We've talked a couple of times about the pretenders, but we have not gotten very far into them. And that was a big part of the reign of Henry the Seventh. So, can you kind of just tell us a couple of the main ones who they were? Um, how believable they were, who they said that they were, that kind of stuff.
2: Yeah. So um, effectively, Henry the Seventh has a rocky start anyway, uh, that for, even from 1486, the year into his reign, there's sort of a rebellion by someone called Humphrey Stafford, although he's not claiming to be um, you know, anyone in particular. There's a suggestion even in 1486 that... Someone called Edward Earl of Warwick, who is George Duke of Clarence's son, uh, is free. Uh, and it suggests there's a rumor going around that he's, he's escaped. We know actually he's in the Tower of London, Henry VI is under lock and key. But if you follow the sort of natural uh, line of inheritance through, people could argue just because Clarence was attainted was a doesn't necessarily mean that his son should have been attainted and is a legitimate sort of heir to the Yorkist throne, even if the princes are dead. So to start with, it becomes this sort of suggestion that actually Edward Earl of Warwick could be the sort of Yorkist claimant to the throne and should be seen as the rightful king. Um, and then in 1487, some pops up in Dublin claiming to be Edward Earl of Warwick, and they actually crown him king, and they crown him Edward VI. Uh, and actually, one of the key noblemen, John Duke of Lincoln, decides to then defect over to, to support um, this uh, Edward, uh, and he's got the backing of Richard's sister Margaret of Burgundy, Margaret of York, sorry, who lives in Burgundy, um, to effectively sort of back you know a military uh, invasion from Ireland over into Northern England in the summer of fourteen eighty seven, and they bring over five thousand sort of German mercenaries run by led by someone called Martian Schwartz, and lots of Irishmen also come over, and they they decide to try to challenge henry the seventh and they tried to get the support of the city of york he refused to back him but this of edward the sixth character you know people wonder who it is and they have this battle a ballastoke on in in june 1487 which henry manages to sort of rout lincoln and schwartz and everyone dies um but what's really interesting is the the herald's account who's clearly there at the battle talks about this boy being arrested who's claimed to be edward the sixth and his name is john but then when you look at the later sources, like Polydor Virgil, everyone, and it's the, the one we talk about, is thats is that someone called Lambert Simnel, who is impersonating Edward Earl of Warwick. And we know that, you know, actually, someone called William Simnel is uh, attempting to, to sort of bring this boy up, Lambert Simnel, in Oxford. And there's a an, you know, sort of a, a document from February 1487 in the, the sort of Court of you know, Canterbury records that suggest that he's been arrested. Maybe he's been arrested. How can then he be at the battle uh, several months later? So it doesn't quite make much sense. Uh, where does this Lambert Simnel story come from? Uh, and the, probably Virgil talks about how Lambert Simnel is then taken on as a falconer and then eventually turning a spit, uh, you know, sort of as a menial servant in Henry VII's court. And one of the Irish records, the Book of Health. Uh, then talks about these Irish noblemen coming over several years later and Henry Tudor uh, pointing out to them that this is the uh, Edward VI that they backed in Dublin uh, and pointing to Lambert Simnel and the Irish nobleman saying, well, no, it's not. We don't recognise him. Uh, So I think there's a big question mark over actually who was this boy child uh, at the Battle of Stoke? uh who was this John character that was that's being refu- referred to by the, the herald who was there at the battle and you know where did Lambert Simnel coming from come from? And you know it's the work of Johnson Ashdown Hill sort of talks about this. You know, was the was the child who was crowned at Dublin the same character as Lambert Simnel? And I think it's a valid question that you know doesn't have an answer necessarily. Uh, but then you have a second protector who comes along who obviously is uh, we now know as Perkin Warbeck. Who turns up in Ireland in 1491, this time claiming to be uh this Richard Duke of York, uh the uh, younger brother of Edward V. And this seems to be far more successful because, as I said, you know, he he then manages to present himself not just as an alternative candidate to the throne, like Edward Earl of Warwick would have been, but he actually presents himself as saying, Well, I've got a bet I've got a stronger claim to the throne than Henry the Uh and you know the Perkin Warbeck story is one of the most remarkable stories in medieval history. I think that so many people believe through certain marks on his body and the way he talks about uh, life at the court of Henry the Fourth, Edward the Fourth, sorry, that um, he genuinely is Richard Duke of York, and these sort of really serious people sort of believe him uh, and go over to join him in Flanders, and you know Richard's sister Margaret of, uh, of York believes you know that. Perkin Warbeck is uh, the Richard Duke of York, and um, you know eventually he sort of found out not to be, and you know some people still believe he is. I, I think he was a very effective impersonator, and he was trained by Etienne Frion, who was sort of uh, Edward IV's uh, French uh, secretary, uh, to you know, understand all these sort of facts that were there uh, at Edward IV's court um and i think it's sort of now proven that when you look at some of the spanish sources that you can say that Perkin Warbeck effectively you know was an imposter but the fact that people believed it again comes back to that point around disinformation and what people are willing to believe and, and why they're believing it suggests that you know people just didn't know what happened to the princes in the tower people didn't know whether they're dead or not and henry the couldn't prove it either you know they just disappeared so you know, it remains an open question And Warbeck, the the Perkin-Warbeck saga, really sort of plays on that uncertainty uh, to the point where people were willing to give up their own lives uh, fighting for Perkin-Warbeck in in 1495. Yeah, but the fact is he invades, uh, lands in Kent, and he doesn't receive the support that Henry Tudor did. You know, both Henry has strengthened the monarchy at that point, but equally people, even though he's got a sort of band of a couple of hundred supporters most people in england sort of recognise that it's a bit too tall a tale to, to actually sort of believe um but you know nevertheless uh that is then sort of the, the saga that sort of plays itself out warbeck goes to scotland manages to persuade james the 4th that he's you know he manages to but quite a lot of these people are desperate and wanting to find a pretender figure and it's no different from henry the 7th when he claims to be a son of henry the 6th which is totally untrue but he claims to be that uh, because the French force him to do that because the French needs to have a sort of a, to convince themselves they're spending their money wisely. So, you know, a lot of this stuff you know, plays on people's ill-education, lack of ability, illiteracy, you know, these rumours are, are very powerful. But Warbeck is eventually arrested in 1497 and then sort of you know, given a second chance, but then he tries to escape. And uh, that's the point at which you know, Henry is ruthless and strikes because he then decides to not only execute Warbeck, but he decides to execute Edward Earl of Warwick who's in the tower he claims you know, Henry claims that was involved in, an, in in the sort of attempt to to free Warbeck and that was going to place him on the throne and actually he's not he's not very sort of capable sort of bright character he's probably suffering from some form of mental illness um, but Edward Earl of Warwick is then sort of executed in fourteen ninety nine alongside War, Warbeck uh, and as a result you know, not a drop of doubtful blood is left, the Spanish ambassador declares uh in his uh in his letter back to the, the monarchs of Spain. Um so in a way the fourteen nineties close out suddenly with this sort of it looking like Henry Tudor has just managed to secure the throne and he's all powerful. But then obviously, you know, a year later his elder son Arthur is dead and it throws the realm back into turmoil again.
0: Well, Chris, I wanted to thank you so much for spending some time with us today and sharing your thoughts and your expertise. Before I let you go, though, um, I know that we have some breaking news Some kind of you heard it here first stuff for you to share with us about some upcoming literature of yours. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, that's right. I've kept it under wraps until now, but I thought this podcast was a good opportunity uh to talk about it. So I'm actually my next book will be a uh full length biography of, of Henry the Seventh, uh to be published for, for Bloomsbury. Um and yeah, I'm hoping to finish that by the end of twenty twenty two. Uh and it'll sort of be published either in twenty twenty three or twenty twenty four. Uh again, sort of covering all these issues, but sort of yeah, right from Henry's birth all the way through to his death um you know, I've looked at the battle of bosworth in the past but I think sort of you know this is going to be a yeah a big my big book on henry I want it to be cover every angle uh so you know it's sort of um something I hope that will be uh, you know a welcome read when it when it comes out um, but yeah yeah just think of the title I've got sort of provisional titles or fragile dynasty in my head or maybe the trials of henry the 7th I'm not quite sure maybe get get your readers to get, give me a, a, a some pointers on what they think would be a good title
0: Yes, please, everyone. Everyone who's listening, let us let us know what you think he should he should title the book. That's great, and I think that's great too because, um, you know, as as everybody may know already, we already know that you have written a book about Richard III. So that's very interesting to get kind of your um, thoughts on both sides of the story.
2: Yeah, I think. I'm sort of looking to. I, well, in my head, you know, I, my first book was on Edward the Sixth in two thousand and seven, and I've sort of gone and done a couple of other things like Death and the Virgin on Amy Robsart, um, and then I did Bosworth, and then I did Richard the Third. So now my plan is to do Richard the Third, and I do Henry the Seventh, and maybe if I eventually get around to Henry the Eighth, I've got the sort of sequence then going from Richard the Third through to, to Edward the Sixth.
0: Well, we're here for all of them, so thank you so much. Where can we find the books that you've already written?
2: Yeah, so um, actually, The Rich of the Third is called England's Most Controversial King in uh, the States, published by St. Martin's Press in 2018. And then we had uh, The Rise of the Tudors. That was what it was called in, in the States. Uh, and again, that was published in 2014, again by St. Martin's Press. Um, and then it was Death and the Virgin Queen, it was called, which was, again, St. Martin's Press uh, in 2011. And then it was 2008, I think the US edition of Edward VI came out as the Lost King of England. Um, but they're all on Amazon or uh, go to eight books if you want to you know, find them secondhand. Um, but yeah, they're all still in print.
0: Perfect. Thank you. And lastly, real quickly, where can we find you on social media? If we do want to catch up with you or weigh in on the title of your next book.
2: So, yeah, I mean, I've, my best account is probably at uh, C Skidmore UK or one word. I've got like sort of I don't know 22,000 followers there. So that's one that I sort of engage the most with people on, uh and always like uh or retweet sort of various anyone who mentions my book uh sort of like wants to talk about it i mean i also have at bosworth battle or one word but that's one of the ones that's a bit of a sleeper account i tend to i used to use a bit um but i, I that's where i follow my historian sort of contacts as well um so yeah at bosworth battle or at sea skidmore uk
0: Perfect. Well, thank you again for joining us,
1: Chris. Have a great rest of your day.
2: Thanks, Steph. Uh enjoyed it immensely. Thanks for your time.
1: And that concludes this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy the show, please show your support by leaving a review wherever you listen. Reviews are some of the greatest gifts that you can leave a podcaster because it suggests their show to people who may not have even known it existed. So thank you so much for your support.
0: Thanks for checking out the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. Read more. Read more on the blog at tutorsdynasty.com. Follow Tudor's Dynasty on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to Tudor's Dynasty on iTunes. Thanks for listening.